happening. And uh, I'm going to uh, try this morning to give you a quick run through um, about some of the things that we're doing in Egypt that sort of have found their form in the exhibition that's next door. So I hope everyone's had a chance to see uh, the exhibition Avoiding Oblivion. If you haven't, um, please pop in after this. And uh, uh, I hope it might make even more sense um, after I've talked about it briefly. Um, the idea uh, grew um, from about September, October um, of last year on when Philip Huat Jabor, who was very much the, the mastermind behind Masterpiece, um, asked myself and my wife Charlotte uh, if we could uh, think of a way of celebrating um, the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the um, tomb of Tutankhamun, um, but in, in a way that would contextualize it within, within the Masterpiece Fair. And um, it, was, it sort of became one of those uh, opportunities to really rethink my own interest and my own work um, in Egypt. So I've been working there. Uh, for 21 years on and off uh, on different projects, um, some of which I'll touch on in just a second. But I, I started thinking, if they're going to do COP27 um, in uh, uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in November, and the Grand Egyptian Museum uh, is opening um, in... Uh, about November. I mean, it, it varies. It, it, I'm sure it'll have a soft opening probably before that, and then it'll go on opening. And there's going to be a, a big series of lectures down in, in Luxor uh, focused there that'll have, be happening on the 4th, 5th, 6th, uh, focusing on the discovery of the tomb. But there has to be a way that we could link all of those things together. And... Um, uh, I was very, very uh, lucky and privileged um, it, when I started uh, getting interested in, in working in the tomb of Seti I that I met Eric Hornung, who was the great Egyptologist, is the great Egyptologist. Um, uh, and uh, he always talked to me about this idea that um, it was preserving the natural order of things that dominated uh, pharaonic culture uh, and ensured a, um, a civilization that lasted, depending on how you measure it, uh, but more than 3,000 years. So probably the longest continuous um, human um, culture um, that we know of well. And um, the goal was to avoid oblivion. So the goal was not to be forgotten. So if you think of Osiris, it's all about remembering, literally remembering. So the, the bits of Osiris gathered together by Isis and bound within the bandages, uh, within the mummy wrappings, to hold him all together. And the fear was oblivion. And so I thought, maybe this is a way into... Um, but if I go to this image, the celestial cow, um, when it appears in Seti, is part of, of a, a text 
called The Myth of the Destruction of the Human Race. And I thought there could be a great way that we can work with the, the Ministry of Antiquities and uh, of Tourism and Antiquities um, uh, and others in, in COP27 to tell a story um, which focuses people's attention in a different way on long-term preservation. So my goal, my interest, my work um, uh, is um, using technology to preserve cultural heritage. In fact, that's only half of the work. I mean, so Factomate started in Madrid uh, 21 years ago, um, really with the project uh, to record the tomb of Seti I. But I, I built, was building a playground for artists. So one half of what I do is working with contemporary artists. And we've built this kind of environment that's grown and grown and grown and is now a bit out of control, where people come uh, with ideas and hopefully go away with very articulate works of art. And on the other hand, we're using the same technologies to... Um, uh, preserve cultural heritage um, uh, originally in Egypt, but it's grown and grown and grown. So um, uh, right now uh, we have um, a project in Somaliland uh, where I was last summer and where we were working with the Hergesa Cultural Centre to train a small team. In Dagestan, we have a team uh, uh, who are local Dagestanis who were trained and are now working within the Institute of uh, Archaeology and Ethnography. And we recorded the site at Kalakoresh, um, and uh, we've been recording, uh, or they have, because a big part of the work we're trying to do is to transfer the skills and the knowledge to local teams to build local economies using technology to document and preserve very diverse forms uh, of, of culture. Um, the, the image uh, top right on, your, on the screen was the team out in um, northern Pakistan on the Afghan border recording dinosaurs' footprints. Um, uh, I have a team currently down in... Um, uh, what was Biafra, so in Bakor, in Cross River State in, in southeastern Nigeria, uh, working on the Bakor monoliths. We've got uh, a beautiful project in the Amazon uh, trying to preserve um, the, the sacred cave of Kamakawaka, which was heavily vandalized. It's in a contested region just outside um, the, the, the reservations where... Uh, 13 different indigenous communities live. And, uh, you know, we, throughout, as you look, there's projects in Mosul. Not everything is in conflict zones, but obviously conflict zones raise many questions um, uh, about preservation. And for me, the greatest sadness is that we've just been through a period of, well, since the Second World War, of relative peace. And yet when Notre Dame burns down, or is severely damaged by fire, there wasn't any high-resolution three-dimensional recording of it before it was destroyed. And I, I don't understand why. I mean, these things are not that expensive. And without evidence and documentation, 
um, you really do lose a lot. So if only the technologies we had now had existed before the Second World War, uh, the world would look like a very different place. And I think using technology to document um, is, is absolutely uh, fundamentally important, both for storytelling and communicating. So now in a post-COVID world, and it's very nice for everyone to be back uh, physically in this environment so Masterpiece can actually take place. But, but I think during COVID, suddenly the relationship between online and offline communication got thrown into a different kind of focus. Uh, and I think watching how these two things can work together is, is vitally important. So um, the, the project in Egypt to record Seti's tomb uh, has grown into what's now called the Theban Necropolis Preservation Initiative. And uh, over the years, we've uh, not only recorded... So in January, we finished the complete high-resolution recording of Seti's tomb. I started it 21 years ago. There were various gaps in the, in the work while permissions were being negotiated and politics were being sorted out and finance was being put in place and everything else. But um, uh, in the interim time, we also recorded Tutmosis III's tomb. We recorded uh, all of Tutankhamun's tomb twice. So I did it before and after restoration. Um, and uh, we've completed the recording um, of uh, the whole of the tomb of Seti, which is uh, really uh, the Herculanean task. I mean, it's, I mean, how many people have been to the tomb of Seti the first? Okay, so it's, as you know, it, it's quite large. Uh, it's quite complex. It's quite highly decorated. And particularly the sarcophagus chamber uh, uh, presents some really serious challenges for high-resolution recording because the, I mean, the scale of the room and the, the height of the ceiling uh, is is very 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 challenging. Um, but but I have now, or Factum Foundation has an entirely Egyptian team. So you're looking here at the team as they get got to the end of of the the recording. And if I'm really proud of anything we've done. I mean, Alia, who's the girl in the middle on this photograph, was a graduate uh, in uh, um, uh, engineering and Egyptology from uh, the American University in Cairo. And I met her just on the day she was graduating. So there were a group of students with Faisal Heikel and Salima Ikram who teach at the AUC. And Alia then came and spent two years working in Madrid. And she can do nearly everything uh, related to ensuring that the technology works. So she can build the 3D scanner from scratch. She can write the software patches. She can repair it in the field. And one of the things that um, uh, is the challenge we constantly have to face is Egypt is dusty and hot with unstable electricity. Just about everything computers don't like. Um, and keeping the equipment working in that environment at the bottom of a tomb uh, uh, is always the 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 dominant battle um, that has to be won. But here, um, there are the two people I'll, I'll pick out in this picture because uh, Musa, who's on the left-hand side, um, I first met Musa um, when I first went, went in 2001, and he's still part of the team. 
Um, and he's now uh, scanning in the valley, in the, in the tomb of Seti, or he was. Um, he, he's part of the scanning team. And the third from the left is Abdu. Abdu was uh, the uh, person who drove our van um, each morning. But talking to Abdu, he was clearly one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And he now is uh, Alia's right hand. And he can also uh, do all of the scanning, mend all the computers. Uh, he doesn't do the software, but he does almost everything. And for me, I'm always asked, you know, what qualities do you look for? Do they have to be graduates? Well, well neither Abdu or Musa have any secondary education of any kind. Um, and I always say, no, no, what we're looking for is curiosity. I need people who engage with what they're doing and are curious. And with curiosity, you can solve most uh, problems. And uh, I love these kind of pictures because this is what um, anyone going to the tomb of Seti would have seen uh, uh, up until the end of last year. And we're now trying... They're processing all the data uh, down uh, in Luxor, and we're trying to arrange for the permission for them to start recording uh, the next tombs. And I hope the next tomb will be in the Valley of the Queens, and I hope it'll be uh, the tomb of Nefertari. So uh, when we've done Nefertari's tomb, we will have done uh, the most beautiful in Nefertari's case, the most important in Seti I's case, and the most famous in Tutankhamun's case, and for me, the most uh, curious uh, in uh, Tutmosis III's case. And I'm trying, well, I'll come to that in a minute. But not all the work we do in Egypt uh, is in um, the Valley of the Kings. Uh, most of it is. But this is one of our team, uh, Osama Dawood, who's uh, uh, based in Cairo, in, based in Madrid, uh, running a, a training course in photogrammetry for inspectors in the, the shrine of Ikhwat Yusuf in in the citadel in, in Cairo. Um, but 21 years ago, technology was sort of in its infancy and 3D scanning perhaps even more so. So I always like this picture because this is the equipment we took out uh, to, um, uh, the, this is in the sarcophagus room in, in Seti's tomb. Um, and really the challenge was, I mean, Dr. Gabala Gabala, who was then the, the head of the Supreme Council, um, was understanding um, but really it was Dr. Zahi Hawass who, who picked up uh, the interest in what technology could do to make this data available. Um, and the, the challenge was, could we take the equipment into the bottom of the tomb, record the wall that's in front of you in this picture, um, at a resolution that would allow me to take the data back to Madrid and rematerialize it in three dimensions. So um, I'm a pre-digital person. Um, so uh, the sort of what we call the Gutenberg generation, um, rather than the internet generation or now the TikTok generation, which I confess I don't understand very well. But um, uh, being a Gutenbergian, I, I like handling things. So we, we took it back to Madrid uh, and using a series of processes that are explained a little bit in the exhibition and in the films, uh, we rematerialized re 16 square meters, which was sent to Egypt and I'm not quite sure where it is now. I think it's somewhere in 6th of October City, the last time I, I, I tracked it down. But it really is a sec section of facsimile that I can tell the difference, but 
but for most people, it's very, very close to the original. Um, and that led uh, to some very, very interesting debates and discussions about the ethics of what we were doing and the practicality of what we were doing. And, you know, like you always get, whether somehow we were stealing the soul of the tomb, so it, it sort of goes back into old photographic debates. And people were surprised. But, but what's even more surprising to me is that 21 years later, the data we recorded on that mission with a scanner um, that uh, we modified for this work, we didn't build it at this point, um, uh, is still probably the highest resolution three-dimensional data recorded on a large scale. And that was 21 years ago. And that's, that's quite a shocking statement. Um, uh, I don't know, is this going to play? Yes. So this is an, an example of that data. Um, which uh, is animated in a, in a new uh, gaming software um, uh, and called Unreal Engine uh, 5. So gaming, the gaming industry. So when I started, it was the automobile and the aviation industry that was pushing 3D scanning. But now it's the gaming industry. And I think looking at this little animation, so... I mean, obviously, this is not real time because I'm not doing it in a gaming engine. Um, but you're seeing something that's, that is real-time animation. And we can change the light source. I can uh, remove the color. Uh, you can look at it, uh, zoom right in, uh, engage with it. And for the first time, this data now, uh, I think, can be studied very meaningfully and can add to the whole uh, academic and intellectual debate um, around um, uh, uh, preserving and recording Egypt's cultural heritage. But it was, it was a few years later when uh, I went back in 2009 with the team to record uh, Seti's tomb to carry on the recording. But at that time, Dr. Hawass was excavating the tunnel um, that leads out of the bottom of the, the tomb, uh, which actually goes on for more than 100 metres, very steeply down. It's a, a vast uh, hole. Um, and the hope was the uh, chamber where the sarcophagus came would be revealed at the end of the tunnel. Um, but but the, the, the fact was it was so dusty in the tomb as they, while they were doing the excavation that uh, we couldn't work there. So uh, Dr. Hawass and Mustafa Waziri, who's now um, the head of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, said, well, you've got all the equipment here. We'd like you to record uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. And for those who know Egypt well, uh, Tutankhamun's tomb is exceptionally famous, uh, but it's rather small and um, compared to Seti's tomb, not terribly interesting. You have to be careful about saying these things. I know there's some Egyptologists present. But, I mean, the, um, the actual narrative cycle doesn't have the relief carving, which we developed all the equipment to record, um, is painted very fast. And I've come to love it. Um, uh, but um, uh, we recorded it. Um, and then uh, in a conversation with, with Dr. Hawass, uh, we recorded it in 2009. Uh, in 2010, uh, we made uh, the facsimile. Uh, in 2011, um, we uh, uh, tried to give the facsimile to Egypt, but of course the, the revolution came, or the, the, the um, uh, 
overthrow or change of Mubarak uh, happened. And um, we weren't able to finally deliver, deliver the tomb until um, President Mursi came to power uh, when the um, uh, uh, EU wanted to give a present uh, to Egypt. And so uh, Baroness Ashton um, presented the facsimile. And in probably the most surreal thing I've ever done is we set up the tomb of uh, the burial chamber of Tutankhamun in the lobby of the Conrad Hotel, which is a 1970s building on the Corniche. And when you were inside it, it was completely spellbinding because you were in the tomb. But you could just hear the cars honking on the Corniche and all of the things, all the sensory information was wrong. Um, uh, and I don't know where I go next. Okay. So, and then... Um, actually, I'm going to go that way for a second. And then... Uh, uh, two years later, uh, we we did move it um, uh, to um, the uh, a site just beside Carter's house at the entrance to the to the Valley of the Kings. If you look at this picture, the building on the top of that um, uh, hill, it will become important in a second. But this is the entrance to the facsimile, and uh, literally we we moved it down the river. There's a, a very nice um, BBC travel show that was made about uh, the work that, I mean, if you can still access it on however you see BBC old programmes these days, but um, uh, with an Egyptian team and an Egyptian architect called Tariq Wali, who's on the, uh, the right-hand side of the top right picture, we, we dug a hole in the ground uh, for Egyptologists, this is an area of reclaimed ground, so there's no antiquities there. It's all rubble and infill. Um, but we dug the hole, uh, we built the facsimile, uh, and we installed it. Um, and this is a photo taken in the facsimile. Uh, you can tell that because in the antechamber, rather like we've done here, um, we filled it with pictures and explanations that reveal... Uh, why you're seeing what you're seeing and, and how it happened. So the facsimile is the facsimile of the burial chamber, the sarcophagus, the sarcophagus lid, uh, and the so-called missing fragment um, at a resolution which is, uh, I would argue, identical from the normal viewing distance. And um, my favourite moment since I've been doing uh, what I do was when Salima Ikram walked in here and had a, a, a Stondal moment uh, and burst into tears and was completely overwhelmed by emotion uh, standing in a facsimile. Um, and what we were hoping in, in 2014 was that um, this approach would make people ask the question, the really important question, is, is it better to go into a facsimile like this and experience the tomb, uh, knowing you're contributing to its preservation? Or is it better to insist on going into the original and contribute to its destruction? So when uh, we were working there in 2009, uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun was getting just over a 1,000 visitors a day. So in the morning, you'd go in, and it was relatively cool and relatively dry. And by the end of the day, 
it was exceptionally hot and exceptionally humid. And it's this change, uh, this dynamic change of uh, temperature and humidity mixed with accidental wear and tear and all of the other um, human-born pollutants that damage the, the surface of the tomb. So the question is still there. I mean, uh, actually, the visitor numbers haven't risen back up to the numbers they were at that time. But they will in the future, and they will exceed them in the future. And so Luxor is dependent on the visitors, and it's very, very important they go. But having installed um, uh, uh, the facsimile, um, we turned our attention with uh, Tariq Wali to Stoplair House, as it's called, which is this uh, mud brick building that I pointed out a second ago. Um, and uh, it was in terrible condition, and it had been empty for a few years because the, the scarp slope on the back side was actually uh, causing the house to, to fall off uh, the, its rather precipitous cliff. Um, but with Tarek, we built a, a ring beam and counterweighted uh, the building and did a complete restoration of the house. Um, uh, so normally, Factum never touches. So this is it's a sort of weird irony. I mean, we never touch objects, but we do touch buildings sometimes. So um, we're currently touching an Alvar Alto building in the north of Finland. Um, but this one, uh, we did actually um, completely uh, save and it now acts as the 3D scanning and training centre um, and archiving centre for the Egyptian team. And it was opened by Irina Bokova, who was then head of UNESCO, with Khalid el uh, who's the, the Minister of Tourism and Antiquities. And uh, I, I love the fact that the work we're doing is now the home for Alia and the team, and she's running uh, constant training uh, courses for ministry workers to get them to understand uh, how technology can benefit uh, preservation. And I think unless you can do this kind of transfer uh, of skills uh, and technologies to create local economies, then this approach to preservation just won't function. Uh, and this is a great example um, uh, of how it can work. So uh, what you can do with the data will, I mean, you can do a lot is the answer. So it can be online, it can be offline, uh, it can be used for exhibitions, it can be used didactically, it can be used to study, uh, and on and on. So I think uh, rethinking sustainability uh, is what can really happen. And we know, so I'll go quite fast now. So Tutankhamun's tomb was a celebrity from the time it was discovered. And Carter, right from the day one, would say, whoa, you can't have this number of people. You know, you can't. These things were built to last forever, but not to be visited. Um, and, um, I mean, that's a view from 2009. Um, and the valley was, was like this pretty much all the time. Um, there were times in the middle of the day when it wasn't, but in the morning it always was. And of course, uh, when the uh, 70s show was touring around the world, there were enormous queues in London at the British Museum and in, in uh, Washington and, and elsewhere. And uh, Tut and you know, Egyptomania in all its forms somehow captures the imagination of just about every age group and every nationality. There's something in this mix of mad, magic uh, and surreal uh, uh, religious models 
um, that are irresistible. Um, but the question is, will people go and visit facsimiles? This is the one that I keep having to come back to. And in Madrid in 2004, we set up the facsimile of Tutmosis III. Um, and there were five-hour queues every day. So really, it was a, a facsimile of one tomb uh, with a few objects which were in the Museum of um, uh, the Man, the Museum Nacional of Archaeology. And uh, I mean, the, the plan which I hope will gain traction um, is to say, could we, so on this, I haven't got a pointer, but on, on here, um, you can just probably make out the, the facsimile of Tutankhamun. And now the American Research Center in, in, uh, in Egypt, Arsi, is restoring Carter's house. So it's being rethought, revitalized, uh, restored uh, in, a, in a very um, enlightened project. And the question is, could we build here a center where they made facsimiles? where all the technologies for facsimile production, not just facsimile recording, um, or not just digital recording, were, were taken uh, to, to the local uh, community, and where we build a whole visitor center around the methods of preserving. And could we install the long line running sort of a bit north-south on this, is the tomb of Seti. And... Uh, there just happens to be a place where we could site it uh, because it's 100 and, let's say, 50 metres long and it falls about 30 metres from top to bottom. And so we could site it and bury it uh, there and then we'd want to put Moses III and, and Nefertari so that the visitors had taken, uh, or as they go, can choose to, to visit this complex and understand preservation, and then can go on to visit other tombs uh, later. So this is under discussion at the moment. Um, if you're interested in how it's done, there's two very nice videos next door, so I'll, I'll skip this part. But, but we've been working for years on all the, the methods of actually making these facsimiles. Um, what I would like to touch on very quickly, and then, then I'd really welcome questions, and I'd love to, to open it up, um, but the recording tools are quite important because actually they're very little understood. So normally uh, people say to me, well, now there are LIDAR scanners, so you can do everything with a LIDAR scanner. And the answer is LIDAR scanners are great, but they're for scanning spaces. They're not for scanning surfaces. So uh, they produce amazing data like this that you can look at on computer screens and you can uh, see and analyze. And they're fast and they're efficient and they're a, a time of flight measurement system, which if I wanted to measure the distance between you know, the top of that wall and the top of that wall, I can do it very accurately. But if I want to measure uh, the surface of an object, uh, the best I could get to is something that might resemble that. Um, and in fact, that's probably a bit optimistic. But, I mean, you, you couldn't make a facsimile. You couldn't study meaningfully at high resolution uh, on screen uh, this data. So uh, we always mix different systems. So the LIDAR scanning is mixed with the white light scanning, which is very good for recording objects. So the sarcophagus um, that you can see in the virtual reality environment next door uh, is recorded uh, with the white light scanner. Um, photogrammetry, 
was a technology, and again, I love it, everyone talks about new technologies. Photogrammetry was invented in, in 1852. Uh, so it's hardly very new, uh, but it's a technology that's really transformed since um, uh, uh, computer power has become uh, uh, readily available. Um, and now with photogrammetry, we can record quite fast at a good resolution. But it was the development of the Lucida scanner, um, which uh, we still use uh, for many uh, large-scale projects of this kind that records data like this. And it's here. So the difference between that and that might not look enormous. But here you can analyze the tool marks uh, for uh, carving the, the plaster. You can really uh, study the surface. My obsession is with the surface of things. Color is important too, and, and I'll show you color very quickly. But um, once you've got the surface, you can start doing a whole lot of things that weren't available before. Uh, that's just a comparison between LIDAR on the right and, and the lucida on the left. So one can be done very fast and has little meaning, and the other takes a long time and has a lot of meaning. Uh, composite photography has changed the way photography works, and so with uh, good um, uh, SLR cameras, we can record the tomb relative, tombs relatively fast uh, at resolutions. Normally, we're working at um, 700 DPI at one-to-one. So um, it means you can enlarge, you can blow up, and we're always working at one-to-one at -one scale. Um, and the result is when you have this data, uh, you can actually replicate things. This is uh, the facsimile of, of uh, the pillared part of the burial chamber uh, from SETI in the courtyard of the Antiquan Museum in Basel. So it was actually snowy outside. And this is the digitally restored Hall of Beauties from SETI. So digital restoration, which never touches the original, but can allow you to understand deeply uh, the object. And here we were working uh, with a number of Egyptologists, with, with Nick Reeves and Aidan Dodson and some others, um, uh, and the drawings that Belzoni produced before he made the squeezes that destroyed the walls. Um, uh, and before Champollion, Rossellini and others had cut out sections and before uh, unspecified people had removed uh, uh, and sometimes lost sections of this amazing room. So Belzoni described it as the most profoundly beautiful space that he'd ever been in. And then he proceeded to leave it as a, a, a remnant of its former glory while creating a facsimile that went to the Egyptian halls in 1821 and triggered the first wave of Egyptomania that led to Thomas Cook sending tourists with their little plaster cast packs to do their own plaster casts uh, off the walls of the tombs. Um, but, I mean, it's really the, the fragments that were cut out that I think are worth looking at and worth thinking about because as you go into the exhibition next door, you go between the, the two fragments on the left. I mean, fragments, these are big pieces. So uh, Champollion's famous quote saying, you know, I'll be praised because this is all that's going to be left of SETI and at least people will know how beautiful it was. Um, 
and he took the piece that's in the center of this image and Rossellini took the piece that's on the right. The facsimiles are of the pieces in their current condition. And if I say the one on the left was restored in 1935 uh, while uh, Italy was uh, in the throes of Mussolini and the uh, one on the, in the centre at the Louvre was restored in Paris uh, in the 1990s, uh, they've taken on the qualities of the people who restored them rather than the qualities that they originally had. And it's, that's worth thinking about. We all change. You know, I, I'm so tired at the moment from, from doing this. I look in the mirror and it's horrific. But um, here, these things change all the time. And how you actually look after them, preserve them, and arrest them. But I haven't mentioned all the way through the work, we're, we're working with the University of Basel. And that um, Suzanne Bickel and, and Florence Bavario have been gathering all the fragments uh, uh, of SETI. And there's about 6,000. And so the task is now to record all of these. I mean, some have paint, some don't. And, and to keep trying to make the data we have of SETI more complete uh, than the tomb is itself. And I, I love the bit on the right where um, uh, we visualize this for Florence, but she has gathered all of those fragments. And you can see these are from a pillar face um, in the sarcophagus room uh, in, in, in SETI's tomb. And, and, and now next door, uh, there's this uh, attempt to try to show uh, uh, how you can use this data, how you can experience it, uh, both as an entertainment and as a resource for study. Um, and I hope, uh, following um, a meeting in two weeks' time, uh, this show will uh, find a new form at COP27. Uh, and all the things we're doing we're doing for Egypt, they'll be donated to Egypt, they have already been, and all of the work on the VR, I hope, will end up in, in GEM with the Restored Hall of Beauties. So if, if anyone has any questions and wants to go through anything in more detail, I'm very happy to try and answer. If not, I hope you... I, I think that's, I mean, it's a great question. And, and uh, the biggest challenge that we face um, is actually how do you preserve digital data for 100 years, for 10 years? So uh, that's the real challenge. As, as the volumes of data exponentially grow, um, I mean, I, I, I mean, Factum's archive in the in 25 years has become, you know, tera terabytes of data. It's vast, and to store that annually in the cloud costs a fortune. So um, you're having to plan, you know, for long-term uh, sustainability of data. But 
you know, my personal obsession is that what would happen, let's say Putin presses a red button or Biden or somebody, and what would happen to all the digital data if there was no electricity in the world for a period of time? And the answer is it would disappear. So we would be in one of the darkest ages of all time because so many of the material uh, archiving systems have been replaced with digital ones. Um, there's a, a great Norwegian company called Pickle who are writing uh, digital microfilm and storing it up in Svalbard. And we're talking with them, and I have permission now to store the data for Tutankhamun's burial chamber uh, as digital microfilm in Svalbard. That's quite surreal, actually. I mean, so the, the whole idea of, of what happens. Um, what happens with the facsimiles? How do the facsimiles age? I mean, um, we, we do our best to make sure they're done correctly, and I hope they age well. Um, there are the, the, the Veronese that we put into Venice um, 15 years on, that's pretty well exactly as it was. But they will age like any material thing, so they will in time need to be preserved and protected or remade. So then there will be a question, should you then treat the, a facsimile as some kind of museum object? And in that regard, one of my favorite questions is when, when Belzoni was making all these wax squeezes, um, and as he took them off the wall, they pull all the paint off. So the paint is now inside the wax squeeze. Um, the British Museum has some. Uh, Boston has some. Uh, I want one of the museums to allow us to make a, a fiberglass, if you like, a, 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 an impression which will pick up the paint and then we dissolve off the wax. So you reclaim the paint from the mould. But the moulds have become museum objects. So they're now valued more than the paint contents that they hold. So I need to find one in private hands in order to do that. So there are big... I mean, how you look after things is, is really the subject of conservation. And, and, and Factum is not uh, devoted to uh, conserving or restoring objects. We're devoted to... Uh, digitally preserving them and then uh, using that technology to rethink how they were and how they should be and how they could be uh, and bringing things back together. So I think um, a big part of recording all the fragments is the facsimiles can actually be more complete. I mean, with, in Italy, we're doing a lot of work. I mean, we did a big project with the Politico Graffoni, so one of the great altarpieces of the Bolognese Renaissance. Uh, where and it was broken up in the 18th century and is in nine different museums. There's 18, 17 panels remaining in nine museums around the world and some missing. And we've recorded them all and brought them back together in their configuration. And suddenly this painting means something completely different from any of its small panels. And I think uh, it's not just Egypt, but I mean reuniting things that are split up, uh, rethinking why they were important, where their value lies. And actually, I mean, rethinking value is, is somewhere at the core uh, of, the jo of the challenge. It, 
Well, it depends what we're making. So if it's a tomb, um, most of the tombs... Uh, if we're going to do them in Egypt, I'd probably try and do it in plaster, um, uh, which is then uh, CNC milled, because time is not an issue, but you need to keep the cost down. So it, it's better to have more milling machines uh, milling a cheaper material that's fragile, but if it's being done locally, that's okay. Um, the new generation of um, uh, facsimiles that we're working on in Madrid are mainly built with uh, UV-cured ink that's layered in 10 micron layers. So we used to always have... Uh, our, in a way, our weakest link in the chain was the output technology because the scanning was higher than the, the scanning resolution was higher than the output resolution. But we've now just developed a photometric stereo uh, recording system which is being tested at the Bodleian Library in Oxford now. And that's recording at 25 microns. And the uh, elevated printing technology is just about keeping up with that, so um, I mean, it's getting higher and higher resolution. But but weirdly, I think for something the size of a tomb, uh, the the data we've got and we've been working with is probably sufficient. But then then it just becomes about you know obsession. So can you can you go further? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Kathy. Um, we haven't, but, but um, I mean, there hasn't been time. So, no, I, I haven't done quantifications on how much. I mean, over the years, I mean, we've, Factum Foundation has spent uh, significant money um, uh, equipping and uh, uh, maintaining uh, the equipment in, in Egypt. Uh, the uh, salaries we pay everyone have to be... Uh, controlled because um, they need... I, I can't pay them significantly more than the ministry is paying the ministry workers. Uh, otherwise, you get a secondary lot of problems. So um, uh, the salaries in Egypt, we, we pay at the top end of what's possible. Um, and so the team, I think, there... There's now seven people who are being paid who didn't have a job before in this area. So, you know, that's quantifiable and how that knocks on and how you'd quantify it is, is something uh, I've never done, but I, I think it would be important to do it. I mean, in Dagestan, there's three people. Um, uh, there'll be, in Calabar, by the time we've, we've left, there'll be probably um, uh, four or five uh, working all the time. Um, uh, in, you know, I mean, in all over the world, that's, that's the goal, is to leave... Uh, trained teams. So we, we, we run a centre in Venice. Uh, the Bodleian in Oxford has got several people um, and in different places. So if you start adding it all up, it's, it's, at, a, it's at a tipping point where uh, if there was the right amount of finance, uh, it could really make a substantial difference for not, not enormous amounts of money. So in, you know, in Somaliland, Ethiopia... Uh, I mean, Ferdi's just back from Niger, and he's in Nigeria at the moment, where we have a big project. So if any of you are interested in the British Museum in November, October, November, 
there's going to be a, a what's called a room three show, which is that room on the right as you go in, uh, devoted to the illicit trade of objects since 1970, focused on the Bacall monoliths, uh, which we've been working on for the last four years. I mean, um, for me, the hope is not, but I, I, I dare say that, you know, the data, I didn't really mention it, but all the data we record uh, in Egypt belongs to the ministry. So 100% for all current and all future applications. It's one of fact and foundation's ground rules that mark us as being different from some other digital organizations. So uh, I hope that it will be used as an additional way of attracting visitors to Luxor that really needs the visitors rather than uh, to uh, uh, doing it. But certainly for touring exhibitions, uh, I think touring exhibitions have a, a great role to play in attracting more visitors locally. So uh, I think there are ways of telling those stories and ways of uh, getting new people interested and excited and, and really way attracting new audiences who, who maybe haven't been there before. Can I ask this question because I've heard that each time people visit these places, uh, a certain amount of deterioration takes place uh, because of people breathing and yeah. all that. So which is why I thought... I mean, how to preserve is, is really a, a big social, political question. And for me, I hope the right decisions are made, but they're not always uh, decisions we have any control over. But, you know, if you go to a National Trust house now, uh, many of the National Trust houses have to replace their carpets with those rather horrible plastic mats because the carpets are being destroyed by the footfall. And, you know, for example, I, I'm talking to the, the Frick in New York at the moment because they have exactly this problem, but uh, two of their Persian carpets are, uh, are some of the most valuable objects they have, and yet people walk on them, but they wouldn't put their, their uh, titians on the floor uh, for people to walk on. And so how you actually value and preserve things or or how you inhibit the experience to the point where it's aesthetically meaningless by printing it onto a plastic support which has none of the qualities of the carpet to touch or to be on so i i think there's many issues that i i hope um will surface over the next years uh, both as online access and as uh, offline access, so experience, experiential access. the situation in which the fact 
taxonomy is indiscernible from the original, you still have the problem of the value of what it is to be looking at the place which is the, the two Well, I, I mean, to be in the tomb of Seti, so, you know, the, the greatest privilege I have um, is close proximity for extended periods of time with things that I can learn from. So this is absolutely clear. I mean, uh, when we were recording Caravaggio's uh, uh, three paintings of the calling and martyrdom and inspiration of St. Matthew in San Luigi Francesi in Rome, I mean, to be able to spend... Um, uh, 10 hours, and we record at night normally, but 10 hours in, in, in Egypt, not, but in, in, in Italy, yes. But to be able to spend 10 hours constantly with those paintings, but not just looking as if you're going to a gallery and standing in front of a thing and looking, you're doing things, so you're active, and it's in those moments that you very often see things that you wouldn't notice, because the way images work, the way they communicate, the way they uh, impart their, their uh, stories, um, uh, requires different ways of looking and different ways of engaging with things. And often in conversation about you know, how we scan it, you start noticing certain details of the surface that hadn't uh, come up. And I think it's definitely true that in in everything, every job we've ever done, there are major discoveries, some, some very major and some uh, of local interest. Of course, privileged access is, is a great thing to have, um, but it is this balance between um, getting access to the knowledge that something contains and um, experiencing it locally that I think will have to be uh, a socially decided um, uh, collective decision um, and if people want to pay money to uh, contribute to the destruction of works of art that's what will happen and if people actually want to think about these things as having generational consequences that are important that you're seeding the knowledge now for your children, your grandchildren, your grandchildren's grandchildren. And, you know, I like the question. I, I don't like thinking like a politician at a COP conference and talking about 25 years. We should be talking about 3,000 years. That We're not looking at short-term benefits. We're looking at long-term uh, impact uh, of what 9, 10, 11, 12 billion humans do. And I think... Uh, in the past, it's what we sort of begin with here, the, 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 the inherent nature of your question is embedded in the facade of the uh, display, which is Piranesi's Café del Inglesi, uh, which was at the foot of the Spanish steps where the privileged English tourists, uh, international, but the Café del Inglesi was primarily for the English ones, would go and sit and share their stories and their purchases and their plunders and their acquisitions and what they'd picked up and, and discuss it. And uh, that, that was really about privilege. Uh, my interest is in connoisseurship, so it's in how you can go deeper, how you can use different um, 
protocols to gain deeper understanding uh, about how to preserve but also how to, to access works of art and that it, it should be as uh, global as possible. So I think online access obviously has limitation. And, you know, I, I hate looking at pictures as reproductions on a screen. I think the screen interface is a remarkably poor one. But it, it's very useful. So if, if I want to send someone a text message to say I'm running 20 minutes late or whatever, it, it's a useful means of communication. But it's, it's probably an ultimately impoverishing one um, in certain ways. But it can be enriching in others. Slightly hedging my bets there. Mm -hmm.